This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. What you just heard is the special supreme power of conviction. It's not a lesson so much today on how our nation was birthed or how we came to independence, but what you just saw portrayed before you is one man who had this unique and special power that we want to talk about this morning. It's a power that can change destinies. It's a power that can alter directions. It's a power, believe it or not, that hurdles through the decades and can save your marriage. It's a power that can transform character. It's a power that can conquer evil. It's a power that can remake society. And yes, it's even a power, and we're thankful for it, that can birth a nation. It's called the power of conviction. And you know, on this first Sunday of a new year, 1998, can you believe it? It's 1998. Two more years, we will have the privilege of seeing a change in the millennium. It's a conviction that is appropriate for this year, this new year. And conviction is our topic this morning and will be in a couple of messages that I'm going to preach. You know, everyone else at the beginning of 1998, if you've already been listening, will be talking about their resolutions, right? Their New Year's resolutions. It's what I think is just a synonym for America's desire for national repentance from eating You know, every year about this time, for one brief shining moment, we think of exercise equipment rather than eating out, rather than ribs and things of that nature. But you know, convictions go a lot deeper than that. Convictions go way beyond a fragile, seasonal, wishful kind of New Year's resolution. Conviction, by definition, is a constant force in a person's life that then moves them to deliberate action. It's those ideas that you and I hold, and every one of us holds some kind of conviction. It's those ideas that you and I clutch closest to our heart and our mind and we've refused to let go of. It's what shapes and directs and empowers everyone's life in this room, either for good or for evil. There is tremendous power in conviction. Therefore, it's a subject that I thought it would be appropriate at the start of the new year to explore for each one of us. And I intend to do that in a couple of messages for sure. But this morning, what we want to look at is just simply the power of conviction. We'll talk about how to build healthy convictions and what some of our most essential convictions should be later, but we just want to take a broad sweep over this vast subject this morning called conviction. And I want to do so, first of all, as you look on your outlines, by just talking about what I call some conviction perspectives. I have three of them I want to offer to you this morning. The first is this. It's my personal assumption that only a few of us have well thought out and clear convictions. Just a few of us. 
Now, I don't want you to mistake in what I say. I think all of us have convictions. But for most of us, our convictions really are just those things that lie just below the surface of conscious thought. They have been formed not so much by well-reasoned, thoughtful analysis, not so much by truth, but our convictions are simply the result of life, the way we've lived, our upbringing, our life experiences have come to us and we've just reacted against them. And as we've reacted against them, we have formulated subconsciously some convictions about life. Now, they may not be true, but that's how we got to where we are. And these life experiences create in us what I call unexamined convictions. Sometimes you don't even know what you have. Others may know what you have. You may not. But they see it operating in your life. They drive us and they define us. Although for us, if we were questioned in a courtroom, we might have difficulty explaining exactly what convictions we really do have. And if we were called on to say why we have those convictions, we might be at a loss to give substantive kind of truth to back the convictions that we've actually been living by. You know, a lot of children of alcoholics have convictions. And I was one of those, my dad being an alcoholic. I didn't realize for years why I was so work-oriented, so achievement-driven. It's a life-shaping kind of propensity that even to this day I still have and have to deal with. But I want you to know this. My work ethic was not born out of a conscious thought process that then led to a conviction, a well-reasoned conviction about high standards in the workplace. That's not how I got there. My work ethic was born out of shame by seeing my dad stumble through the house drunk at night, ignoring his responsibilities, and in the intensity of those moments for a young boy, a conviction was created in me that said this, I'll be better than that. Now you say that at five and at seven and at 10 and at 15, and this conviction gets stronger and stronger. And then when you're launched into life, you have something to prove. You have a conviction embedded deep within. And that conviction is, I'll show the world I'm better than that. And so you drive yourself and you work long hours and you set high goals, but you're not really sure why. And you know, it took years for me to discover that that unexamined conviction was driving me. You know, many of our convictions, many now of your convictions are absorbed just like that. They've never been consciously agreed on between your mind and heart. You've never come to the place where you said, that's what I really believe. No, you just believe and react. Although you're not always sure why. Your thoughts are not clear and well-reasoned. Your convictions aren't. They're not necessarily based on truth. They're formed out of the spontaneity of the context of life. And oftentimes they are unclear to you they are unexamined, 
and they can be at times extremely unhealthy. But you get driven by them in the day-to-day of life. And if you're not sure how you got to those kind of convictions, then when people begin to pick at them and ask, why are you doing what you're doing? It's just our fleshly nature to resist looking within, isn't it? And examining it. And then if they say, why do you do what you do? Or why are you working those long hours? Or why do you feel that's what you should do in this marriage? Or this is the way you're going to discipline the kids? Or this is how we're going to use our money? When somebody begins to ask the why questions, you can really get defensive. Because you're being asked to look within and think it through and come to a place that you could actually show that publicly. And people would say, well, that's pretty good. But that's a very scary thing, isn't it? And that's why convictions need to be talked about and thought about. Why do you feel the way you do? Most of us really don't know why. Because we really haven't thought that deeply. Well, here's another perspective. Secondly, our convictions shape both how we see life and how we respond to it. You know, it's so funny that at the core of our life, these convictions are our lens to reality. I will never forget when we put these tapestries up. You see these two tapestries? Let me walk over here just for a second. You see this tapestry up here? This tapestry is signifying Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we were so excited about that. And if you look up at the very top, there is a dove descending. Problem is, a lot of people didn't see a dove. Look closely. Do you see a demon? Look. There's his big mouth coming down. There's his little pointed nose and his beady eyes. How many of you see that demon there? Okay. I probably scarred you for life with the tapestry, hadn't I? See, I've always seen a dove there. I've always thought about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the infilling, the empowering. But you know, through a whole different lens, you can see a totally different image up there and you can look up there and you can go, whoa, what is that? That's some creature up there. Now let me tell you, your your convictions do exactly the same thing. Did you know that? They shape how you see life. And they shape how you respond to life. I want you to listen to Stephen Covey, who's author of the bestseller, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Here's what he says. We interpret everything we experience through what I call mental maps. We seldom question their accuracy. We're usually unaware that, they, that we even have them. We simply assume that the way we see things is the way things are. And the way we see things is the source of the way we think and then act. You know, your convictions are your mental maps. Your convictions are the way you see life. Whether it's accurate or inaccurate, it's the way you see life and the way you react to it. It's convictions of one sort or another that moves one person to pray about life and another person to wring their hands and get up early and go to bed late and worry, 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 worry on how they can control it. It's convictions of one kind that allow a person to work in a positive, open, transparent way on their marriages and for another to close their heart to their spouse and blame every evil 
on his or her mate. That's a conviction. It's a conviction that allows one person to give of their time and money generously to the kingdom of God and another to hoard obsessively, thinking they've got to have more to build a thicker and thicker wall of security for themselves. It's a conviction of one sort or another that allows one woman to work on her character and another woman to only work on her image. It's called conviction. And we need to know that behind all our behaviors is a conviction of one sort or another. Now here's my third perceptive kind of insight, and that's this. A definition of conviction at this point is imperative. Right from the very start, we need to say, what do we mean by conviction? Well, Webster's defines conviction, listen, as a firm belief. That's a very succinct statement, a firm belief. But you know, if you think about that, firm beliefs can make people saints. They can also make other people terrorists. They can make one person stable. They can cause another person to be a fanatic. Depending, this is the key, depending on which firm beliefs they hold on to, right? So I want to be very clear about what I mean by conviction. And I want to give you two definitions of conviction. Jot them down. Two definitions of conviction. One's practical, one's philosophical. And you'll see why I've chosen to do both here in just a moment. But a very practical definition, as I look in the scriptures and I think about life, would be this. That a conviction is a firm belief in truth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It's a firm belief in truth that gives direction. It's a firm belief in truth that gives direction, and here's the good news, and in time liberates and prospers. It's a firm belief in truth that gives direction and in time liberates and prospers. But then there's a flip side to that definition, and it's, and it's where God comes into all that. This is where I get philosophical. I think a conviction to actually be implemented needs to begin this way. This is the way my philosophical definition would go. That a conviction is God-centered, God-sustained, and God-accomplished. One of the things I don't want you to hear me say in this message is that a conviction is something, a real conviction is something that we will. We just make it happen. We, we create a a thought through kind of lofty standard for our marriage or our personal life or our character and we grit our teeth and we go at it every day until we get it done. Can't do it. We are dependent people like Dan said earlier in the message. We are needy people. We are people who need to be filled up. And only when our convictions start with a God-centered kind of focus and then every day we ask God to help sustain us in that will it ever come to accomplishment. That's what I mean by conviction. Now, having said that, let me offer, having given those kind of three conviction perspectives, let me look at a, let's look together at a life, kind of a unique life of conviction. I want to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And as you arrive there, I want you to go to verse 24. And what you're going to find before you is Jesus' discourse about John the Baptist. Now, John at this time when these words were being spoken, was as popular as Jesus Christ. 
even though his role was just simply in preparing for the way of Messiah. And John had a unique and very celebrated life, and that's why he exists in popularity even to this day. He had a great upbringing. He was born of godly parents. His father, Zacharias, was a priest. His mom, Elizabeth, was in the line of the Aaronic priesthood. So they both had these priestly backgrounds, great heritages that they brought into this marriage and that they brought to their son in his life. Now, we know the story that they had both become old. Elizabeth was barren, and then they suffered a miraculous conception. Not like the immaculate conception, but a miraculous conception still the same. An angel announced to Zacharias that Elizabeth was pregnant. She was going to have, they were going to have a son. They were supposed to name him John. And that he would one day be the heralder, the announcer, the preparer of Messiah. And so to this end, his parents raised and nurtured him. And to this destiny, John himself, as he got older, when he was old enough, committed himself to kind of a Spartan-like existence where he disciplined himself and he readied himself in the wilderness to become that which the angel had prophesied. Now, when his public ministry was finally launched, he became a phenomenon in Israel, much like the Beatles became a phenomenon in America in 63. Remember that? Some of you, you old-timers remember that. Young-timers, I don't remember that. I listen to the records, but I don't remember that. But you remember the hysteria, the screaming, the girls wailing in the audience as these four mop tops would sing. And I want you to know, in Israel, there was that same kind of electricity. I want you to think of it that way, where he came preaching and there was such a need, there was such a moment, there was such a readying of hopelessness of the people that when he came preaching his gospel, his gospel of repentance, the whole world wanted to listen and they poured and streamed out into the desert to hear him give his messages of sin and righteousness and judgment. And though his popularity continued, he himself pulled back because his father told him, you're just a morning star. And when the sun of righteousness rises up, you'll fade out. And John, John knew that. He knew his destiny and he believed it. And this was the greatness of his life. But now I want you to notice here in verse 24, Jesus' assessment of John's life. I want you to read it with me. Look at verse 24. Let's just read through a few verses and listen to how Jesus kind of summarizes the life of John. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about him. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than John. Now, he goes on to mention that those who are least in the kingdom will be greater, but he's talking about a future destiny of all who enter the kingdom of God. Our destiny in heaven is greater than any destiny on earth, but on earth, Jesus makes a profound announcement. If you want to look at a great life, look here. 
because there's no one greater than John. Now I want you to know, I hope that in your heart there is a passion to be great at goodness. There are people who want to be great and have great images and great homes and great careers and great sports achievements, but there is a greatness that is commended over and over again in Scripture. And when Jesus holds up John as greatness, he wants something to stir in your heart to be like that. And we want to see how he got like that. Why was John considered so great? That's what Jesus is kind of prodding the people to think through. See, he's wanting them to think. He's wanting them to process. So he asked them some questions. They're all standing out there. He says to them, why did you go out into the wilderness? Look at the first image he gives them. To see a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, what attracted you to John? Was it the fact that every time public opinion changed, he changed? Is that why you went out? Why did you go out to see him? Because he was morally flexible and he could bend to the winds of the time. Is that what attracted you to John? He was modern relevance in, 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 in human form. Is that what attracted so many people to John? Was he driven by the crowd and the need to fit in so badly that he would yield to every social force in order to look good. Is that why you went out to see John? You know, in the Greek New Testament, when you read those questions, by the way they're structured, they're already given the answers. And of course the answer is, that's not why you went out. And certainly those questions are obvious to us. John's attraction was not his instability, but his stability. Not his yieldedness, but his firmness. Not his moral flexibility, but his moral inflexibility, right? Isn't that why they went out to see John? But you know what? At that point, we need to ask ourselves a question. Because see, that's what Jesus wanted to say. Why are you coming out to John? Why is he so attractive to you? Look at yourselves. And you know what it was the heart of so many people there? He was trying to uncover a hidden conviction. And behind so many of those needy people was a conviction that needed to be replaced with John's conviction. And that conviction was to be accepted, to be included, to fit in at any cost. If the crowd goes this way, I have to be with them. If the crowd does this, I've got to do that. In order to keep this man, I'll do anything. In order to achieve this level of success, I'll give up my moral rights. It was situational ethics supreme in order to find acceptance. He's wanting you to think about that. You see, John lived life on the inside out, but so many of those people needed to understand that their conviction in life, their real conviction in life, was to live life from the outside in. And he wants you to think about that. Then notice the second imagery. He says, did you go out to see this man dressed in soft clothing? We could say it another way. Did you go out to see comfort? Is that what you came out to see? Is that what moved you? You know, I remember when I was a little boy on Sunday afternoons in my hometown of Ruston, my mom and dad often would take us out for a drive and we would drive through the real exclusive neighborhoods of our little town. 
And I would hear my mom and dad up there talking about, wow, look at that, and look at that, how they did this, and all that kind of stuff. And they were kind of envying those things. And I would sit back and look at those grand homes, and I'd say, man, if we had that, we would really have it made. Now, to be honest, I still do that sometimes. You know, drive through and go, wow. Because it so appeals to my flesh to think somehow if I could just get there, that's an easier route for me. If I could just get there, all of life would kind of fall into place. John says, is that why you went out? And you know when he asked that question, he knew who's standing out in the crowd? A lot of rich people. Real rich people. In fact, in verse 29, he mentions tax gatherers. Tax gatherers, by the way, were some of the richest people in all of Israel. And yet there they stood. Why were you there? That's what he's asking. Why were you there? Why did you go out to see this man? Not for comfort. John was the antitype of comfort, wrapped in camel's hair, living off bugs, locusts, honey, Discipline from an early age, like a Nazarite, that he would have certain limitations. He would never drink wine or anything like that. He was a Spartan supreme. And yet there are the wealthy people listening to him. And why were they there? Because Jesus wanted to think, help them think that comfort is not all it's cracked up to be. It doesn't give life. It gives a lot of responsibility. But it really doesn't bring life. A lot of times it crushes us and molds us into an ugly thing. And we don't even know why we're being driven to get the next thing in order to feel more comfortable thinking that somehow that's going to make it happen for us. Why did you go out to see John? Then he mentions a prophet. And he says, yes, you went out to see a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. And then the question is, well, what more? That's a good question, isn't it? You know, as I looked at that, I thought, yeah, what is it that's more? What is it that made him great? It's because John lived a life of, listen, real, healthy conviction. He knew who he was before God. He knew the truth that God had on his life. And he was so convinced and convicted of it that he lived it out. And that is the core, ladies and gentlemen, of true greatness. And if you ever want to be great, if you ever want to have greatness in that sense, and a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and liberation, there is only one path that you can walk, and that's the path of John the Baptist, the path to real convictions. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, but John the Baptist is a hard guy to relate to. I mean, he was a wild man. He lived in the desert. His life was totally unique, one of a kind, historically unrepeatable. Is that true? Well, yes and no. Yes, his life is indeed un unique. Every life is unique. But no in this sense, that that doesn't mean that his life, his whole life, as we'll look at now, can't in some way speak to ours because there are patterns in John's life that I find are essential patterns in everyone's life. There are lessons to be learned. I want to give you four that you can take home with you. Here's the first one. The first one is this, real convictions. Now remember what I mean by real convictions. Firm belief in truth, not just firm belief. God-centered, God-sustained, God-accomplished. Real convictions like that. Don't listen. Write it down. Real convictions don't just happen. They don't just happen. False convictions just happen. Real convictions don't just happen. They are the result of time, 
of two things, time and particular environments. And John had two of those particular environments and he took the time to draw from those. And what were those two environments? Here they were, Here, here's what they were. First of all, he was raised in a family of real convictions. And secondly, he took the necessary time alone with God to process and embrace his own personal convictions. And you wanna see that? Turn back to Luke 1 just for a moment. Let's look real quickly. If you turn back to Luke 1, we find the first one stated this way in verse five of chapter one. It mentions that in the days of Herod, there was a certain priest named Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. And then notice verse six, parents. It's very important to see verse six because this is how John got to be who he was. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were a family of real conviction. They knew what they believed. They had processed what they believed. And then notice over in verse 80 of chapter 1, it mentions that as he got older, it says, and the child, that is John, continued to grow and to become, and look where he became strong. Strong where? Strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. That was his alone time with God. Every person of conviction has gotten there by spending some time alone with God thinking it through. Now let me make two applications real quickly. First is this to parents. Parents, what convictions do you want your children to have by the time they leave home? That's a great question. Have you ever surfaced those consciously and put them on paper? And then secondly, are you presently practicing those convictions before your children? How can they have real convictions unless you know how to state them succinctly and they can see them, observe them being processed in your own life. It's impossible. You know, when I wrote the book, Real Family Values, in chapter 11, there's a little project for parents to write out their convictions. And uh, after the book was released, I got these calls from people telling me, I did not have any idea how hard it was to write down what I believed about marriage, parenting, and the family. See, they thought they could just write them down. But you can't just write them down. You have to ponder them. And then, here's the, here's the tough part. You've got to look across the table at the person you're married to and see if they agree. And I remember myself writing out my own family values, how difficult that was. It took me months to shape it where I said, now this is what I want my children to know and believe and see observed and hold me accountable to. There's nothing in this message, by the way, that's easy. Nothing. Everything here is hard. It takes time. But you have to take the time to work through that process. And then secondly, notice, with John's life being in the desert kind of processing, here's, the, here's another great application. When have you taken time alone with God to decide for yourself what you really believe? Some of you are in college. You've been under your parents' tutelage all these years. Now you're out in college and you need to decide, but what do you believe? Some of you are married, you've been coasting along for years and things are getting rocky, it's time to pull back, get along with God and say, now, now what are the things that I could say, give me this or give me death? Do you know what those things are? 
Let me tell you, we live in a world that can't state those things. That's why in the whole debate on family values, we can't ever come to a conclusion. No one can get there. But I'm telling you, if you want to live a great life, you've got to get there. Now then secondly, I want you to notice this. Real convictions spring from a conclusion about truth. A conclusion about truth. Do you remember Jesus' dialogue with Pontius Pilate? Jesus talked to him and, and, and Pilate was questioning him and Jesus said this, he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice and then Pilate responds like a good 20th century American. Remember what he said? He said, what is truth? I haven't concluded upon it. I don't know what it is. It's still out of my reach. It's unknown. It's not in my grasp. And what Pilate was simply telling Jesus in that moment, not only was he lost spiritually, he was lost in every other way. He was one of those guys who was going with the flow. Or maybe if I use Jesus' analogy up above, he was going with the blow. The blow of whatever cultural wind was blowing at the time because Pilate had a need to fit in. He needed to be accepted. He needed to be relevant to his society. And nowhere do we see that relevancy and that real conviction in him better than when he offers up an innocent man, Jesus, to death for his own political expediency. And when he did that, he manifested his real convictions. And you know what his real convictions were? That there's nothing that matters in life but me. I'm truth. Or what little I know of it. Professor Alan Bloom, who was at the University of Chicago in philosophy and who wrote the bestseller, The Closing of the American Mind, says this of students. He says, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of in America, and that is almost every student entering the university believes that truth is relative. And I want you to know, without truth, our only conviction is to ourselves. And we will bend like a reed to every wind that blows in order to have self-preservation and self-acceptance. I want you to turn to John chapter 3 for a moment. There's a statement that's made in John chapter 3 about John, the, actually John the Baptist is making this, but he's talking of Jesus Christ and he's telling his men that he's going to have to decrease and Jesus is going to have to increase. He says in verse 31 that Jesus comes from above and is above all. He says in verse 32 that Jesus has what Jesus has seen and heard, He bears witness of. And then He comes to verse 33 and He speaks of Himself and those who are following Him. He says, He, listen, read, read it with me. Look, look at verse 33. He that is John the Baptist, He who has received Jesus' witness has set His seal to this that God is true. That God is true. In other words, there comes a moment in John's life, John's the Baptist's life, as he saw Jesus come and present himself, as he thought about his calling, his heritage and all, that he had to come and he uses this interesting imagery of a, a ring making a seal. When a king or an authority would make a seal with a ring, when they would do that, that seal was to say, this is final. And John says, he who receives Jesus' witness, he has to come to a place where he sets his seal of where truth is. He has to believe that God is true. Now why do I say that? Well, I say that for real 
important reason. At some point in every person's life here, they cannot just mimic that they believe the Bible. They can't just talk about they believe the Bible when I go to church. There's got to be a place where you really say to yourself, I believe this. And so when I hit troubled times, I go to this and I listen and I set my seal to the fact that whatever it says is what reality is, no matter how I feel. No matter how bad I want to get out. No matter how bad I'm suffering. No matter how many times I've failed. You have to come to a place when it says after you failed the 150th time in that same sin, you can either say, I'm always going to be that way and I'm just going to live like it, or you can go to the truth where it says He's faithful and just to forgive our sins if you'll just confess it again. And you've got to decide whether that's true or you're going to live by your convictions of feelings as your authority. At some point, you've got to decide what the truth is. And real convictions knows where it is. Thirdly, I want you to notice real convictions is always hard on sin. John came preaching repentance from sin. He spoke to the people about their sin. He attacked the immoral life of political leaders like Herod when Herod took his brother's wife. He attacked Herod over and over again. He spoke up about sin. He chided the religious leaders who saw him as a radical, but he saw them as hypocritical of acknowledging truth but never really believing it. And he went after them with a vengeance. He was hard on sin. And you know what? Without real conviction in your life, you won't be hard on your sin. Because a person of real conviction is hard on sin. And not necessarily hard on everybody else. They're just hard on sin. But here's how you can know maybe you're not quite there yet. If you don't have real conviction, what you do, you become soft on sin. You're filled with excuses. You let sin go by and you don't feel bad about it anymore. You become religious. You become pious. But really, you're spiritually dead. You blame others for your failures. It's always everybody else's fault. And like the religious leaders, if you get around a person of real conviction, they make you very uncomfortable. If somebody's really talking about what they've learned in the Word and they're excited about it, and you're not, you draw back. When somebody starts reading the Scripture about a certain sin that you're partaking of or you've allowed yourself for your rights, that bothers you. And you like to go after them the way the religious leaders went after John the Baptist. See, you have to decide whether you really believe the truth and can agree with it or the truth will become an irritant to your life. And people of conviction will become an irritant. Real conviction cuts through life like few things can. But real conviction is always hard on sin. And then the last lesson we can learn is just simply this. Real conviction will always draw people to an encounter with Jesus Christ. You know what I love about John's life? As tough as he was, as weird as he was, as strange as he was, the fact was in Matthew 3.5 it says, and all of Judea and Israel went out to see and hear Him. You know what I find? That any person who has healthy, spiritual convictions that they're living out, they become 
incredibly attractive to people. Sometimes people react to them for a season, but after a while, by their constant constancy, by their constant regularity, by their observable liberation and prosperity, after a while, their arch enemies are drawn to them. One of the guys that hated me the most in my spiritual quest was the guy who one day bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and said it was because I wouldn't yield on truth. That is so important to see that. And let me tell you, people will see you living conviction out and they'll be drawn to you. You know, I don't know what you think about when you come into an auditorium like this, if it seems real big to you and you're overwhelmed with it. But you know what I see? When I come into an auditorium like this, I see the empty seats. And when I see the empty seats, you know what I think about? I think about the people in Little Rock right now who are not here. They're not in church. You know where they are? They're out wandering around somewhere and they are yearning. Do you believe this? They are yearning for something different than what they've got. They're hurting. They're enslaved to this world. They're tired of going to church and religion. They're just tired of it. It's old. It's dead. It doesn't mean anything. It's just the same old routine. And they wish that they could see some light somewhere. And you know where it is? It's in the seats that are filled. That's where it is. And the invitation this morning is, would you like to bring people to Jesus Christ? If you do, you have to have a life that brings people to you. And to have that kind of greatness, you've got to have a life of conviction. I'd like you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're going to finish and you'll be dismissed. All I want to do is just ask some questions. But, I'll, but I'd like to have, we're not going to sing here at the end or anything like that. I just want to take a moment in the last few moments we have and get alone with our soul. And the only way I know how to do that at times is just to try to get the distractions out. And I'm going to read some questions that I've been asking myself this week. And I want you to entertain them with God. Okay, so bow your heads, shut your eyes, and let's do this together. Now let me ask you, what are your personal convictions? What would you die for? Do things just immediately come to mind? Maybe just a few things, but they're just clear as they can be. And if those things come to mind, would you have truth to back up what you believe? Could you support what you believe? Or is it just how you feel? And then if you have a conviction, are you asking God daily to help you live out those convictions? Is that the way you, you think about life? God sustain me to accomplish these things? Or you think, it's just by my will, I'll get it done. Now I'm going to mention subjects and let's see if a conviction comes to mind. Racism. Somebody with a different color. What do you believe? Purity. Money. Your spiritual gift. 
community group. Debt. Regular time in God's Word. Resolving conflict. Sharing your faith. Being accountable. Your role in marriage. Time alone with God. What you're here for. Let's stand for prayer. <clears throat> Father, these are soul-searching thoughts. They are not easy thoughts. They are things that cause us to look within, but this morning that's the right place. To begin a new year with no, no understanding of what moves us, and with little comprehension of what we really believe. Father, we would know that that would be an incorrect path of getting closer to you that we talked about this morning, of becoming more like you. So Father, in these weeks ahead as we talk about convictions, how to build them, how to maintain them, what they should be, Father, I pray that for all of us that we would be open our soul would be open, our spirit would be open to closely examining ourselves to see what we really believe and to be willing to change those things that have just been absorbed and not thought through. To be willing to look to You, Lord, to help us make a difference in ourselves first before we make a difference in the world. But Lord, most of all, I pray that as we talk this morning, that there would be a spark of passion for true greatness. The greatness of John. The greatness of real conviction. We thank You for this new year. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be over us at the beginning and sustain us through it, and that when we come to a time like this next year, we would look back and see real change, real convictions. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.